0: So the, great, the two main great laws of the temple are, number one, Lord, I'll do what you ask. I'll do what you ask. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. I'll be what you want me to be. I will be obedient. And then the second one is, I will get rid of the part of me that doesn't want to obey. So obey and remove the obstacles of obedience. So on my journey to the celestial kingdom... I go through the terrestrial and telestial worlds. And I have to make a decision in each one of them. Hold on or let go. If you decide to hold on to anything telestial, you may end up in a telestial kingdom. And there's something very appetizing about the the telestial world. It appeals to some part of me. But the law of sacrifice says I'm going to let it go. There is nothing you can offer me that I want to hold on to. I do not want to live in a telestial world. And I let go. I obey the law of sacrifice. And those things that prevent me from obeying minimize. And then I walk through a terrestrial world. And once again, I have a whole new series of things that are trying to pull my attention. If you want to be terrestrial, that part of you is gonna prevent you from obeying the celestial law. You You will not obey a celestial law if you are not willing to give up the part of you that wants to be terrestrial. Do you see how these two work throughout my life? But I need help. I don't know all the things I'm supposed to do and I need help recognizing the things I'm supposed to let go of. Can you help me identify what's celestial and terrestrial? And the Lord says, you bet. Can I put you under covenant to obey it? I will put all of that into one system and we will call it the law of the gospel. It is the compilation of everything that I'm supposed to obey And everything I'm supposed to, it identifies the things of which I am supposed to let go. I really think we could stop there. But the Lord knows this mortal existence, and so He's going to take two of these and He's going to emphasize them. If you really think about the fourth and the fifth covenant, wouldn't you say they're part of the law of the gospel? Isn't the law of chastity part of the law of the gospel? It is. But for reasons he fully understands, I don't know that I fully understand, the Lord says, I want to emphasize two of these. And they are two that you will struggle with. And so let's, let's emphasize them. And we talked about the last one, the one, we talked about number four in our last class, the law of chastity. And we took a look at temple version of chastity, inner. Heart, desire, mind. So now let's talk about the last one the law of consecration. Now, let me do big picture first. Let's start big picture. How much of Heavenly Father's possessions is He willing to give you? Everything, everything He owns. Is there anything God owns? that he isn't freely willing to give to you in its entirety? How much of God's nature is he willing to share with you? Everything. Is there anything that Heavenly Father keeps back? Would you therefore say it is the nature of celestial beings to want everyone to have what they have? Would you agree with that? that the very nature, the very essence of being celestial is I want you to have everything that I have. Therefore, can you see that the road to the celestial kingdom needs to include a willingness to give up what I have? You can also see, let me present it another way. Wouldn't you agree that it's a little hypocritical to say I want God to give me everything he has and be unwilling to give God everything that you have. Wouldn't you consider that a little hypocritical? I want everything that God has. I want God to give me everything he has, but I'm not willing to give him certain parts of my life. That doesn't fit, does it? And if the temple is preparing us for life in a celestial world, there is no question that we need to talk about Our love of things. Our love and our desire to hold on to our possessions. Would you say it is the nature and disposition of the average human being to want everyone to have what they have? It is not our natural desire. Do you see the problem? Do you see the need for the law of consecration? So let me set this up. Turn with me to section 37 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So this church was born in New York, right? Everyone knows that. The church was born in New York, but persecution drove us from New York and sent us to Ohio. Now, so there were some some things brewing in New York that were creating an unsafe environment. And as the Lord prepared to send them to Ohio, he began hinting at some interesting little thoughts. Go to thirty-seven. Section 37, verse 1, and then again in verse 3. Tell me what he says. Given in New York, Fayette, New York, where the church was established, the church is barely, what, eight months old? And the Lord is saying what in verse 1? Go to Ohio. Go to Ohio. Assemble at the Ohio, he says in verse 3. Then in verse 38... This is a fascinating. Idea. someday I'd like to know the rest of this. Look at verse thirteen. What's one reason he left? He sent them out of New York. Doctrine and Covenants thirty-eight thirteen. One reason he sent them out of New York is because Whitney. There was something brewing that could very well have destroyed them and the church. And so the Lord says, you've got to leave. Now, this time he gives us a why. Go to verse 32. Why go to Ohio? Why is he sending them to a place where they're not going to be so persecuted, where they have a little bit of freedom and some space? Why send them to Ohio? He gives them two reasons in verse 32. Give me both of them. Number one. Say that again. Okay, I'm going to send you to Ohio to give you my law. And then secondly, to endow you with power. Now, the personal endowment will not come till Nauvoo. This endowment was a church endowment of keys that we would need. So I'm going to endow the church and I'm going to give you my law. Does anyone know where the law is located? He sent the church to Ohio and said, I'm going to give you my law. And a sad commentary is Latter-day Saints don't even know where their law is located. Where is the law that the Lord sent us to Ohio to receive? Is it in Ohio? Nope. That's temple. That's dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. What section does Joseph Smith designate as the law of the church? I would encourage you to learn this one. This, I think, is a big deal. That's, the Constitution of the church. That's section 20, how to set it up. But where is the law? Memorize this number. 42. Section 42. Turn to 42. 42. Turn to section 42. Now, not all the sections are of equal worth. And 42 rises above many of them, if not all of them. Section 42 is a different section. What does Joseph say at the very end of the section heading? Joseph calls section 42. He says this section embraces the law of the church. There it is. So, do you remember how we talked about the law of the gospel tells me what I need to do to obey and what I need to let go of? Well, section 42 is a major contribution. The law of the church. Now, you can find a whole lot of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And it fascinates me. It fascinates me how he kind of bridges from the old law to the new. Look at a few thou shalt nots. Look at verse 18. How does he kind of begin the new law, the Latter-day Saint, the law of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints starts with a few old ones like verse 18, thou shalt not kill. Not a surprise to us. Verse 20, thou shalt not steal. Verse 21, thou shalt not lie. Now, don't look at the next one. But what would you expect to be among that group? Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. In the old law, he would add, thou shalt not commit adultery. New law, he kicks it up a notch. Instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, the new law is, thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart. How, how many people in the scriptures am I commanded to love with all my heart? Show me on your fingers. Two. Two. Two people. Who are they? God and spouse. Thou shalt love thy wife, not as thy neighbor. That's everyone else. Thou shalt love thy wife or thy husband as I love God with all my heart, might, mind, and strength. Do you see the new law? Now, some of these I love. Verse 27 is a law of the church that we don't talk enough about. What should distinguish the Latter-day Saints? According to the law that God gave them, what should distinguish the Latter-day Saints? Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. We're going to skip the one we're going to talk about today. Go to verse 40. I love this one. One of the laws of the church, a law, a modern day law of the church right there in verse 40. Thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. Thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. Do you see how we've been given a law? Now, one of those, one of the very most important ones that now leads us into this covenant is verse 30. If you claim to be a Latter-day Saint, if you are willing to obey the law of the gospel, then you covenant to do what? You covenant to remember the poor and to consecrate. That is one of the most defining laws of the church. I covenant to remember those who lack. And I'm going to covenant to consecrate. Now what he's What he then reveals in 31, 32, and 33 is an outward law. Now that's what we'll do next week. That was the sweetest sneeze I have ever heard in my whole life. Oh my goodness, that was just as adorable. When I sneeze, I annoy everyone, but that was, I'm sorry, but that was the sweetest sneeze I've ever heard. That was awesome, sorry. So what follows in section 42 is an outward, and someday we will live the fullness of what he describes, not today. So you could argue we do not live the law of consecration today, but I would counter with there are two laws of consecration, and just like we've seen in the temple and in the chapel, one is an outward and one is an inward and you will never live the outward until you live the inward. So what do you think this one is? I have not been asked to consecrate all of my property to the church. I have not been given a stewardship. I do not live the law of surplus. I live the law of tithing. So I do not live the fullness of the outward law of consecration that we will live someday. But true or false, I am under covenant to live the law of consecration. Mm-hmm. So what am I covenanting to do if we don't live the outward law? Now, I get that it's, a, you know, I'm pre- being prepared for it, but there has to be more than just prepare for it. I do not believe that I went into the temple and made a covenant to do something someday. I believe that for the last, I don't even know, when was I 18? I'll be 54, a long time ago. I have been asked to live, I've been doing something. The law of consecration I started when I came out of the temple. So there has to be a foundation on which this outer law is built. So it would make sense that the Lord set us up for that. So let me take you back to section 38. Before he gives the law of the church, which is the outward, he gives the inward. So may I suggest that we can break the law of consecration into two pieces. Piece number one is an inner. These are attitudes. You will never live the outer until you have these attitudes. And I would suggest that what you covenanted in the temple was to have these attitudes. Lord, I promise that I will have consecration attitudes. So let's see if we can talk about attitudes of a celestial person. Number one, let's find him. Verses 16. 16 of 38. Kind of, he kind of sneaks this one in. And for your salvation I give unto you a commandment, for I have heard your prayers, and the poor have complained before me, and the rich have I made. And then he throws in this truth, ready? What's the truth? All flesh is mine. And then he throws in a little bit later, go down to um, 39. If ye seek riches, what it is the will of the Father to give you, you shall be the richest of all people, for you shall have the riches of eternity. And it must needs be that the riches of the earth are mine. So what does he mean by all flesh is mine and the riches of the eternity are mine? What does that mean for me? What is the attitude he is asking me to have? All that I am. And all that I have is God's, are God's. Now, do you see how that attitude relates? If I make money with my brain, if I make money with my brain, whose brain is it? If its brain is mine, then I made that money. But if the brain belongs to someone else, then who made that money? So who to whom does my brain belong? To whom does all of my abilities, if I'm a singer, if I were to make millions of dollars with my voice, to whom does that money belong? Because he gave me the voice. Now that is an eternally celestial attitude. All that I have is because of him all that i am is his i have nothing that's my own the only thing that's mine is what the only thing that's mine is the one thing he can't take away from me my agency and the really the only thing i can give him right what's the only thing i can give him is my agency I choose to follow thee because everything else is his. Everything I am is his. Everything I have. Have anyone, anyone ever bought a house? You're too young to have bought a house, right? When you buy a house, before they actually sign the papers, they do a title search. They need to know if the house can be legally sold to you. So who owns this house? Well, where did they get it from? 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 So they have to establish that the person who's selling you the house has the rights to the house. So they search the property back far enough to say, okay, you can buy this house. This person has the legal right. But the ironic thing about a title search is how would it end in every case? I bought my house from the Parkers. The Parkers bought my house from back, then, and they bought my house from, if I go back far enough, where am I going to get to? Everyone, every single search would get to, someone just claimed the land. Well, whose was it before they claimed it? It was God's. My house is God's. So when the day comes when he says, would you be willing to give your house to the church? What would my attitude be? Absolutely, because it's already his. You see, the attitude has to precede the action. The attitude is, everything I am is his. I have nothing that's mine. My time. Did I invent time? Who gave me time? My body who gave me my body. That's the attitude. The attitude has to be all that I am and all that I have is his. Therefore, I shouldn't have a problem paying my tithing, right? Because it's his. It's not mine. you see the attitude? Do you see the foundation? James. So is this where when the Savior is talking about, like, they're talking about the coins, and he's like, so would you give money to God, he goes, well, we'll render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, yeah. that which is
1: God's to God. Where did the coin
0: come from? Give it back to Caesar. It's Caesar's coin. But who are you? Who are you? Give that to God. What is the coin compared to in the attitude that everything that I am is God's? You see that attitude? So then on top of that, seeing our bodies as temples and being God's, it's like how would I, our bodies are a well God. So it's like, how would I treat? How would I treat God's temple? Well, that's what this is. You see the attitude? Yeah. It just changes everything that I do. Now, let me kind of push that. Go with me to Revelation chapter 4. Walk with me into the celestial kingdom. Walk with me into the celestial kingdom. I am not being rude, but some of today, I'm going to teach your class, and I don't want you to hear it here. I want you to hear it in your class. So I'm going to shut this so that it's new for you. Okay, section Revelation chapter 4. Walk with me into the celestial kingdom. Watch what those who enter the celestial kingdom do and tell me why. So Revelation four, John is taken into the celestial kingdom. He sees 24 elders there. And then at the very end of verse four, look at verse 10. Tell me what the saved celestial people in the celestial kingdom do when they get there. Tell me what they do. 10 Revelation four ten. they fall down and cast their crowns before the throne. Now, tell me why. Why would a celestial person, why would someone who enters the celestial kingdom take their crown and throw it to God? Whitney? Because what makes you celestial, the very essence of being celestial, is what acknowledgement that this is not mine? This is because of him. He's the one that wears my crown. Now, what if that crown represents my earthly talents, my earthly possessions, my earthly abilities? Then a celestial attitude would be what? It's all his. Do you see why this one has to come before this one? So let me ask a searching question. Are you living the law of consecration or are you struggling with it? You covenanted to have that attitude and to always remember that everything that I have, everything that I am is his. I don't get inspired dreams. I think I've had one inspired dream in my whole life. But I have a friend who has the most incredible dreams, and he shared a dream with me years ago that has never left me. I'm going to pretend I had the dream. Allow me to say it, but I fully acknowledge it wasn't my dream. Imagine this is the dream. In the dream, I'll be him. I'm a beggar cast off by society, begging for everything that I eat, everything that I have, and I'm sitting in a cobblestone street begging. Trumpets announce the coming of the king. No one wants the king to see a beggar, so they brush me off the side. As the king's carriage comes into town, it stops right where the beggar was and out steps the king. And the king finds the beggar and lifts him up and takes a jewel from his crown and hands it to the beggar and says, hold this up. So the beggar holds up the, crown, the jewel and it starts to glow. A brilliant light comes out of that stone. And in the light of the jewel, that the king gave the beggar, he's no longer dressed in rags. In the light of that jewel, he's dressed like the king. And now, dressed like the king, everyone around the beggar starts to kneel. And that was the dream. But tell me the application you and I have a tendency to look at each other in awe and amazement at what we see. And if you look at me and say, oh, my, bro- my goodness, Brother Dunford, you-, you are worthy of worship. What's in my head? I am simply what? A beggar, and all you do. All you do is you see me how? In the light of the jewel that he gave me. I am just a beggar. See the attitude? There's the celestial attitude. Did Jesus have it? How do you know? How do you know Jesus had it? How do you know Jesus had that attitude? Everything he did, what did he do? Can I show you? First of all, do you remember when the, great, the, the rich young ruler came up and said, Good master, what do I have to do to go to the celestial kingdom? He immediately said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. But let me show you a fascinating verse. Go to section 19. The only time Jesus ever spoke about his sacrifice after it occurred. The only time I can ever find on record Jesus talking about his accomplishment. He's talking about what he accomplished. Now, the setting here is if you don't repent, you're going to have to suffer like me. And I need you to know how badly I suffered. He's teaching a doctrine. If you don't repent, you're going to suffer like I did. And just as he starts to describe what he did, the one and only time I can find where Jesus is talking about himself. To make a point, but to talk, he's talking about himself. And notice verse 18. He doesn't even finish the sentence. Before he says what? Nevertheless, Nevertheless glory be to The father, what was his celestial attitude? Everything I have accomplished is because of the father. And what's our attitude? Everything I accomplish is because of him. Do you see the celestial attitude? That's what I covenanted to do. I covenanted to remember that He is the source of all that I am and all that I have. So allow me to do one more. Let me, allow me, just give me one more scripture. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. No, 8. Deuteronomy 8. Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8. Allow me, you are in a similar situation as the children of Israel. As they were coming out of the wilderness as they were coming out of the wilderness and going into the promised land, as you are coming out of your missions and coming out of college and going into a very prosperous world, you're in the same situation. You've been in the wilderness, you've been in the desert, and now you're transitioning into a power, a wonderful world of opportunity. And so allow me to say to you what Moses said to the children of Israel in chapter eight verse seven. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of hills and valleys, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. That's the world you live in. Verse 10, when thou, art, when thou hast eaten and are full, I plead with you to bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget the Lord thy God. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full and has built goodly houses and dwell therein, and your herds multiply and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and the car that you drive is getting nicer and nicer and nicer, and the house that you live in is getting bigger and bigger, and your clothes are getting more and more expensive. I plead, verse 14, that you will not forget the Lord. I know what you're going to be tempted to say, verse 17. I know you're going to be tempted to say, My power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. There's the temptation. It's my brain. It's my hand. It's my muscles. I did it. It's mine. Instead, verse 18, what you should say, you should remember the Lord thy God, and you should say, It is he that giveth me power to get wealth. And the reason he gave me that power is so that he could establish his covenant. Do you sense the attitude? Now tell me, how, co- how common is this in the world? How many people you interact with today will have that attitude? And their attitude is contagious, isn't it? Covenant keeping people, this law starts there. I am simply a beggar to whom the king gave a jewel. And I can't ever forget that. It's his jewel. He gave it and he can take it away anytime he wants. He says the attitude, how would having that attitude change your life? How would having that attitude change the church, your ward, this country, Alright, any thoughts on number one? Whitney. I guess it's more of a question. It just it seems so easy, like like in a split second, for when someone to when someone gives you praise for something you know, something that you've worked really hard at or something that you've accomplished, you know, they give you that praise and then if you're the one that says, Well, it really wasn't me, like it was God, it's almost like they take that as a cop out. And they're like, no, no, it was you, I'm like, but it really wasn't. You don't need to say it. Say thank you. That's all you need to say is thank you. But in your heart, what's your attitude? It doesn't, it, you know what? And I've learned, thank you. That was so sweet. You're so kind. But in my head, what am I saying? Thank you, Lord. They're really talking about thee, not me. I know it, and you know it. Thank you for handing me a jewel that they're now recognizing, you see the attitude? So I don't live the law of consecration in what I say to you. I live the law of consecration in what I think about myself in my heart. So is there necessarily anything wrong to be like it was a partnership with God? Like all of these huge accomplishments that we have, either degrees or we've saved up money for a house or something to be like, I did this with the Lord instead of just saying it was all the Lord? I'm just going to read it from the scriptures. Now, we would need hours to answer that question because could the answer to your question be, yes, there's something wrong with that. And could the answer to your question be, no. And what would be the determining factor? The attitude in my heart. The attitude in my heart. Now, Let's, let me just read it. Let's read it in scriptures. Let me, let me read that very thing. Alma chapter 29, verse 9. How did Alma handle it? Now, was Alma a pretty good missionary? Did Alma have things to which he could brag and boast? But what was his attitude? Alma 29, 9 says, I know that which I have accomplished. And what does he say? What does it say? I know that which I have accomplished, I'm paraphrasing, I know that's not what it says, but I know that which I have accomplished and what does it say? I glory glory in it. So does that answer your question? But the caveat is the next phrase, what does he say? So can you glory in what you and the Lord have accomplished? Absolutely. But in your heart, what do you know? The real brilliance, the real greatness isn't me. The greatness is him. You see that? But I don't think there's, I I, I take that as my pattern. Lord, you and I did something fabulous. And I glory in it. But I'm not glorying in myself. I'm glorying. You see that balance of all those things? I think you should have some level of satisfaction in what you and God have accomplished, but the moment it turns to pride, I've lost it. Does that answer your question, James? Yeah, my comments last question was kind of along that same theme because I feel like the pattern in the scriptures, what the Lord teaches, with like fasting and tithing—is it like fasting outwardly? Because sometimes I feel like people have said, "Oh, it was God," like, but it's almost in the saying of like, "My relationship with God with God is better than yours." So, like God blessed me. So but so it's that prideful side. And you know, it's like, are, are we doing it for the glories of men? Yeah. But we say it's God, but is it a Remyampta moment? Yeah. Thank you, God, for making me better than everyone else. That's a Remyampta moment. Like you're examining your own worth, but then you just destroyed it all. Yeah. Right. Okay, okay. And I again I don't mean to be judgmental, but sometimes they interview an athlete that just won a championship and he says. I'd like to thank God. And and I'd like to think that that was coming from the depths of his soul saying, This is not me, this is God. But the other side of that could be a show of, and it really isn't there. And so it's a reminder to me to genuinely say, All that I am, all that I have is His. But it's a lot more here, it's all here. It's all in my heart. All right, we better stop. That was just number one. Okay, we will do number two. We got about four of these if we can get through them, but we, we have to end this class on the 27th of April. So we'll get through as many as we can. We got to get into a, celest- a ceiling room. I want to end in a ceiling room. We've started in the initiatory. We went into an endowment room. We need to end in a ceiling room. The pinnacle of the work that we do in the temple is in that ceiling room. So let's get there. Leave you with my testimony that all that I am is His. All that I've ever done was Him. I am grateful and I glory that I got to hold His jewel. What an honor. It was for me to hold his jewel, but I don't ever want to forget that it is his jewel. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.